and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our continuing study of the book of Isaiah, we come to chapter 5, verse 1. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 1. A young and very successful executive was driving down a neighborhood street in Chicago. This was not too long ago. And he was watching for kids that would always seem to dart out between parked cars. And so he slowed down to make sure that he wouldn't hit anybody, but he didn't see anybody. But instead, what happened is a brick smashed into the Jaguar's side door. So he slammed on his brakes and he backed up to the spot where the brick had been thrown and he jumped out of the car. He grabbed this kid who had thrown the brick, slammed him up against the car, and he said, what was that all about? I mean, what in the world are you doing? That's a brand new car and that brick that you threw is going to cost you a lot of money. And so this little kid, he said, please, mister, please. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I didn't know what else to do. And he said, I threw the brick because no one else would stop. And tears were running down his face, and he was sobbing. And then he pointed around the other side of the car, and he said, it's my brother. He said he rolled off the curb, and he fell out of his wheelchair, and I can't lift him up. Sobbing, the boy said, would you please help me get him back in his chair? He's way too heavy for me, and he's hurt, and I need help. So all of a sudden, this executive's heart started to change a little bit, and he lifted the young man back up into the wheelchair, and he took out his handkerchief, and he wiped the scrapes and the cuts, and just checked to see that everything was going to be okay. And this grateful little boy said, well, thank you very much, and God bless you. And the man watched as the little boy pushed his brother down the sidewalk toward their home. Interestingly, he never did repair the side of his jaguar. He kept the dent to remind him not to go through life so fast that someone has to throw a brick at you to get your attention. You know, God whispers in your soul and he speaks in your heart. But sometimes when you don't have time to listen, he has to throw a brick at you. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather listen for the voice of God in my life than wait for him to throw a brick to get my attention. But you know it's always our choice. Listen to the whisper or wait for the brick. God spoke to the children of Israel over and over and over, but they wouldn't listen. He sent many prophets to warn them that if they didn't listen to them and turn from their wicked ways, that they would have a brick of unbelievable devastation thrown at them. Isaiah was one of those prophets that God sent to warn them and to rebuke them. And Isaiah has different ways of getting his point across. Do you remember when David was king and at the height of his reign that over Israel that he had a one-night stand with a woman by the name of Bathsheba? She became pregnant and David, trying to cover his sin, had killed her husband Uriah. About a year later, God sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke David for his sin and to pronounce doom upon him and his house. Do you remember how Nathan began that thing? He began with a parable as gentle as if it had fallen from the lips of the master of parables himself. He disarmed the apprehensions of the guilty king and skillfully led him on until he showed him that the sin that he had so denounced was his very own. Isaiah does the same thing, very similar. 
He's going to tell a parable here. And in chapter 5, he does it in a song form. And, and the burden of the song is the story of a vineyard. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved, that is Israel, a song of my beloved, that is the Lord, regarding his vineyard. Isaiah tells the nation that he's going to sing a song for them. Isaiah calls the nation his beloved, and this is because even though he was called to pronounce judgment against them, he truly loved God's people. Isaiah had a message from the Lord to share with the people of Israel, a message that he knew would not be easily received. With his creativity, he chose to deliver this message by singing it in a song. Now, it's always wise to try to share the truth with people in such a way that it will be as palpable as possible for them to receive. That is, as long as the truth is not compromised in any way. Isaiah's song is from the Lord, and yet he is the one who is singing it. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. Israel was God's choicest vine of his own calling and of his own choosing. The tower placed in the midst of the vineyard was to be a lookout to protect against any invading enemies, and this is symbolized by those whom God called as prophets. They were to protect the people if they would just heed the prophet's words. The wine press was placed in the midst of this vineyard, and it was this wine press that was to produce the wine. The wine was to be pressed out of the grapes by those who were given charge to tend the wine press. And then it says, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. With all of these advantages, it's not surprising at all that he expected it to bring forth good grapes. I mean, what else would be expected? But look what it says, but it brought forth wild grapes. The owner had every right to expect it to produce good fruit. But when it didn't, you can imagine his disappointment. And that tells us that when God saves a life, he has good reason to expect there to be fruit from that life. Charles Spurgeon said of this, and I quote, I have been thinking of the advantages of my own position toward the Lord and lamenting with great shamefacedness that I am not bringing forth such fruit to him as my position demands. Considering our privileges, advantages, and opportunities, I fear that many of us have need to feel great searchings of the heart." God asked Jerusalem and Judah to consider the story of the vineyard, verse 3. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? The Lord had done so much for Israel down throughout their history. He led her out of slavery to Egypt by his powerful might. He fed them, he clothed them, he gave water to the people throughout their 40 years of wandering in the desert. He brought her to a luscious land flowing with milk and honey, which he gave her as a possession. God planted them in the land that he had promised to their father, Abraham. God nourished them there. God blessed them. He did everything for them that he could to establish a strong and a powerful nation. He conquered each of her enemies in the land when she sought him. 
He raised up judges to conquer her enemies when she finally repented and sought his help and protection. He gave her prophets to bring her back into line when she strayed, if she would only heed their word. So God again did everything for them. He planted them in the land. He defended them. He built a wall around them. Their cities were built. He watched over them. He helped them develop the land. And the whole purpose was that they might be a people who would live in loving fellowship with the Lord. That he might enjoy the fruit of his relationship with them. But instead of bringing forth real fruit, it was just wild grapes. So the Lord said, what more could have I done? I've done all that I can, and they just won't bring forth good fruit. There's nothing more that I could have done that I didn't do. And so this is what I'm going to do. Verse 5. And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. The people were his pleasant plant. He wanted justice, but they became men of bloodshed as they beat down the oppressed and the poor, the weak and the helpless. He wanted righteousness in the nation. However, the people instead caused those whom they oppressed to cry out in distress. So God is going to see that Jerusalem and Judah is destroyed and overthrown. Beginning with verse 8 now, he pronounces six woes upon Israel. A woe is used in the Bible to imply... You are in store for deep suffering, dreadful affliction, ruinous trouble, and terrible grief. The first woe was based on greed. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field, till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly, many houses shall be desolate, great land, beautiful ones, without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a omer of seed shall yield one ephah. The first woe is pronounced upon those who add house to house and join field to field. In other words, they were men that were taking advantage of the poor by buying their inheritance. Every acre of the land of Israel had been given by God to the various tribes and divided up by clan and family. But there were greedy men in Isaiah's time who were playing Monopoly, trying to buy up every piece of real estate until they had taken over the entire board. They were so covetous that God said that they wouldn't stop until they were alone in the midst of the land. But God won't allow their investment to pay off. Their land will produce almost nothing. The second woe was based on hedonism. Verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. They had pursued a lifestyle of debauchery, and many were drunkards to the point that they even woke up early in the morning in order to pursue getting drunk. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute, and wine are in their feasts. In other words, they were wanting to be entertained by skillful musicians, they're all enthralled with the talents of men, the handiwork of men. 
but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. So they don't regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his skill, God's abilities. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Hosea 4.6, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opens its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. So a tremendous slaughter of the people and captivity awaits them. People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty of the lofty shall be humbled. So God will bring down the pride of man, the glory of man, and the Lord of hosts will be the one that will be exalted. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. He will be exalted in judgment. That is, when the judgment comes, God will be exalted through that judgment, and he will be declared righteous in the works of judgment that he brings. When the people are removed, verse 17, then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. Strangers will be eating in the waste places of the wealthy. The third woe was liberalism. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. In other words, they pull their sin to themselves with ropes of emptiness, and sin as if with a cart rope. This is speaking of the volume of sin that they are engaged in, where anything and everything goes. Their sin was openly displayed for all to see with no shame. Let's say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. They mock the Lord as if to say, go ahead, God, we're ready. Come on, give us the judgment. They talk as if they're not sinners. You know, it's like, well, I wish the Lord would judge all of these sinners. I wish God would hurry up and do what he needs to do. The fourth woe is relativism. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, certainly we see evidence of this sort of behavior all around us in society today. Christianity is called evil. Homosexuality is called good. Victims of crime are treated ruthlessly by defense lawyers. Criminals are given every opportunity to be released. Billy Graham, speaking at Cornwall Theological Seminary some time ago, said this, and I quote, We've lost sight of the fact that some things are always right and some things are always wrong. We've lost our reference point. We don't have any moral philosophy to undergird our way of life in this country, and our way of life is in serious jeopardy and serious danger. End quote. This same sort of perversion in our nation was going on in Judah. The fifth woe is based on intellectualism. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. The people of the nation truly thought that they were shrewd and that they were wise, for in their own eyes they were puffed up in their estimation of themselves. As Shakespeare said, man 
poor man, so ignorant in that which he knows best. And the sixth woe is based on perversion of justice. Verse 22, woe to men mighty at drinking wine, woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. In Isaiah's day, justice went to the highest bidder. He's talking here about their judicial system. Taking bribes, they would justify the wicked man and take away the rights of the ones who were in the right. In verses 24 through 30 now, the Lord promises a sure and complete judgment. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. God will judge the nation for their sin. Why? because they have despised God's word. This is why God's anger burned against his own people. And imagine what he thinks about the church overall today. So many churches and denominations have completely forsaken the word of God. They won't teach through it. They refuse to read from it. They deny the reality of it and instill doubt in it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Is it any wonder that we aren't getting teaching, sin isn't being reproved, people aren't being corrected, hardly anyone is being trained in righteousness, and most Christians aren't equipped anymore? Every one of Judah's sins could be traced back to the rejection and the despising of what God says. Man's opinion was far more important than was the word of God. Therefore, verse 25, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they will come with speed, swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep. Nor will the belt of their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. In that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened by the clouds. God did just that in bringing Babylon to conquer his own people. It was a dark day. It was a tragic day in the history of Judah when Babylon came and destroyed the nation. Now, as we come to chapter 6, Many scholars believe that this vision in chapter 6 is out of chronological order. That is, this vision of the Lord actually occurred 
at the very beginning. In other words, before the rest of the book, before Isaiah began his public ministry. Now, there are certain years that are very important to all of us. We can date certain events in our life by the year in which they happened. Going all the way back in 1865, the year in which President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, was assassinated. 1941, the year Pearl Harbor was attacked. America went to war. In 1963 was the year that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. In 2001, especially 9-11, the year America came under attack. Isaiah also dated a great event in his life by a year. He remembers the specific year because he begins chapter 6 by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, you may ask, was that an important year? Well, if you were King Uzziah, yes, it would be a very important year. The year was 739 B.C. Uzziah was one of the great kings of Judah. Unlike most of the kings before him, he honored God throughout most of his administration. Because he honored God, his reign was a reign of plenty. The land literally flowed with milk and honey. The economy was booming. His was also a reign of prosperity. Worldwide trade was at an all-time high. There were two chariots in every garage, a turkey over every fireplace, clean spring bottled water was everywhere. His reign was also a reign of protection. King Uzziah won every war that he fought because the good hand of God was upon him. But then Uzziah died. It was as if Franklin D. Roosevelt died in the middle of World War II, or as if Abraham Lincoln had died in the middle of the Civil War, or as if George Washington had died in the middle of the Revolutionary War, where everyone else saw despair and discouragement and disillusionment and disappointment. Isaiah saw the king. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now, who is this Lord that was sitting on the throne? Well, the Apostle John quotes verses 9 and 10 of this chapter in John 12, verse 40. But then he said in verse 41, these, we read this earlier in our scripture reading, these things Isaiah said when he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So the Lord sitting on the throne here in the Old Testament is none other than Jesus in the New Testament. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ sitting on the throne of glory. It was Christ who appeared to him in the vision. And only Isaiah received such revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. But do you see the contrast? The earthly throne was empty, but the heavenly throne was full. Heaven's throne is never unoccupied. Psalm 45, verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There are two kings that are seen in verse 1. One is a dead king. One is a divine king. One is a mortal king. One is an immortal king. One is a human king. One is a heavenly king. One king had died, as all kings do. One king lives forever, as no other kings can. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. There is a great story about Arturo Toscanini, the master symphony conductor. He had given a masterful performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And the audience was alive that night, and when the master laid down his baton, 
The response was unbelievable. They rose to their feet and they applauded and they applauded and there was an encore and then another one and then another one and the roses were brought out and the orchestra bowed and Toscanini bowed. Finally, Toscanini hung his tired body over the music stand, wrapped his baton and he said, gentlemen, gentlemen. And the orchestra members leaned forward to listen. They thought he might be angry and they couldn't really tell. And in a fiercely enunciated whisper, he said, gentlemen, I am nothing. And they sat there gasping at this genius of musical performance. And then he wrapped the baton again and he said, gentlemen, you are nothing. And they had heard that for weeks at rehearsals. They sat there in silence before the great master. And then with a tone of adoration, he said, ah, but Beethoven, he is everything, everything. And I want to say to you that Jesus Christ is everything, everything. When we come into his presence, nothing else really matters. We need a fresh vision of the enthroned Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. When Christ sits on the throne, the world's hot spots take on a new perspective. Get eternity into the picture and all else fades away. Isaiah saw clearly what we need to see completely in these difficult days in which we live. And that is, is that God is on the throne. His hand is on the throttle. He is high and lifted up above every ruler, every circumstance, every condition, every problem, every difficulty, and he is in absolute, complete control. We may face terrorist attacks, militant homosexuality, cultural dissipation, increasing persecution, spiritual hostility, but God is on the throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of a robe is basically the hem or the fringe. This was what demonstrated authority, rank, and position. Today we look at the shoulder and collar of a military uniform to determine rank and authority. Then the robe was like a man's uniform and its hem, its fringe or train, was his rank. And so here in Isaiah, the fact that the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple demonstrates his absolute authority. Verse 2 says, Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now the seraphim are a class of angels like cherubim. Their name means burning ones. And now we learn in one sentence the single most important thing we can ever learn about God, and that is his chief attribute. What is it that really makes God, God? And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gibb teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's way.